Welcome, movie fans. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 81 of Reading Between the Reels. If you're a new listener, we're so glad you found us. And if you've been enjoying the show, please tell someone about us. Post on X or Facebook, write a review on your favorite podcast catcher, or just recommend the show to a friend. I'm Craig Dickinson, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Corey Heitschmidt, Justin Eldon. What's up, fellas? How we doing? Catchphrase here. <laughs> oh, no, Corey. <laughs> I didn't bother looking up a catchphrase because I just assumed you were going to steal mine like you always. Hang on. May the odds ever be in your favor. Oh, oh they were in yeah. your favor today. There Got you it. go. There could be only one. That's, That's also true. Rob, yeah. I'm sorry. We, uh, we got a theme going, though. It's really kind of interesting. I was thinking about that, too, because tonight we're talking about the Hunger Games. <laughs> uh, not Highlander, which we just did. But there also can only be one. So mm-hmm. it works out pretty well. Unless you're in love. And kind of. That might be true. Uh, so anyway, um, Corey, I'm going to start with you. Overall thoughts on the Hunger Games movie. All right. Now, listen. Again, not necessarily my favorite movie. Uh, the first time I watched it, I was actually kind of bored in it. I did not fall asleep like I did in Blade Runner. But this movie, this movie's a good movie. I think it's a, it's one of those movies when I watch later and I kind of sit back and I think about it, I think I realize there was more to the movie than I saw the first time through. It's not a movie you can just watch once. Uh, their whole trilogy, everything they've got going, looking forward to the new one coming out. It's it's a movie that at first I was kind of thought there was just some atypical roles. When when Craig first said, hey, we're going to do the podcast and we're going to do it on a movie about some people, poor people from different districts who have to be forced to fight to the death in combat. I thought, oh, great. Russell Crowe, Gladiator. This is going to be great. Uh, but then when I saw this, I was like, okay, it's Hunger Games. So I liked it. It was good. Um, but the the thing I have about it, it's a movie where, here's a tweet that I read about this. It's a movie where a woman learns to not hate the players and instead hate the game. And I thought that really does summarize it. Sure. In the beginning, I feel like she hated all the people, everyone and all everybody, and she was just aggressive. But then later on, she learns that it's the game she's going after. It's it's snow that she's needs to take down. And there's a lot more to it that I think we'll end up talking about. Um, but I think it's a it's a good plot. It's a good deep story for survival. Uh, it's a good definite some uh, fan theory that I delved into that I look at and I realized that made the movie so much better and so much interesting for me after I watched it to where I said, holy cow, that makes way more sense. And I love this movie. So. Okay, looking forward to the to the fan theory. Justin, what about you? Um, I overall really enjoyed this film. I don't think I have any major critiques. Um, I don't know that I like love the film. Like it is a movie. It happened. Uh, everything is well done. The acting I thought was fantastic. Uh, some better than others. Great score. Uh, cinematography. I I don't feel like. They pushed the boundaries with anything there. Um, nothing too artsy or or standout-ish. Like, there's a couple things we can talk about later. Um, but I think what this movie really does, and it's hard for movies to do this, is it is both a standalone movie at the same time as like launching 
a, a trilogy, um, mm. which which gets pretty difficult. And Into the Spider Verse, I think, did that incredibly well as well. Um, it's it's the second one of this trilogy that kind of falls short of that a little bit. It's no longer a standalone movie, but um, I guess we can't really give the movie credit for that though, since it's based on a book. But I'm going to give it credit anyway because we're talking okay. about the movie. Uh, well, I'm going to be that guy that says the book is infinitely better. And so I cannot, I can't separate the two things. I remember, um, really? Yeah. I, I read the book when it first came out and 2008 it was recommended by, this is what, here's a blast from the past Corey. Vivian Jennings was the one who recommended oh, this Oh, Vivian Jennings. Yep. <clears throat> She's like, you, have you heard about this new book? Uh, and I had not, but I, I checked it out immediately and, and loved it. <laughs> um, have you heard about this new book? It's about child murder. <laughs> it is. It's about child murder. It's fantastic. Um, and teaching middle school sometimes, you know, it's wow. nice to think about. I'm just saying. Okay. Um, you're, Anakin you're the- <laughs> Skywalker has entered the chat. <laughs> I do love Revenge of the Sith. Um, so, uh, you know, my I have a couple of gripes about this movie. I, I like it in general, um, but I really miss the first person aspect of the book. And especially when you've seen that a movie, a much worse movie, Twilight, uses first person narrative uh, narration. I think this movie would have would have worked much better for me that way because uh, the paranoia that Katniss feels throughout the book is really neutered. I think in this film, when you, you go to like, here's the control room, here's Seneca Crane pulling all the strings, where she has to interpret that in the book and has no idea what's what's happening. There's this, and as a reader, you don't have any idea what's happening either. So I miss that a lot. Um, I also can, I don't like the I commentary. Comment on, yeah, on go that ahead. just real quick. Sorry, sorry. Jump in. So I was I'm, sometimes when I watch these movies, I have to think, okay, like in in what atmosphere did they come out in? Like, what was the atmosphere in 2012? And you mentioned Twilight. Like, this is a post Twilight movie, and True. I think that they they saw that these young adult novels are doing well in movie form. But I wonder if they wanted to differentiate themselves from Twilight a little bit by not doing the voiceover. Or sorry, not doing the narration. Um, yeah, because I feel like Twilight got a lot of flack for being too dramatic. But also, I feel like Jennifer Lawrence's Katniss sells a lot of that. Obviously, not to the same level that a voiceover or maybe the book does, but she just does like a fantastic job of like creating that tension and paranoia throughout. Like she is not a happy person in this at all. She's stressed out. Yeah. No, yeah, and I would agree with that. I, I just, uh, I would have liked to have seen her given the choice to convey that even more. You know, it, it, it's 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 fine. I think that the pretty, it's a, all in all, it's a pretty good adaptation of what I think is a really great book. I mean, I remember when I first saw this movie, like I had such a bad taste in my mouth because it didn't do things I wanted it to do, and that's partly my fault because I had expectations, and so I immediately reread the book uh, just to kind of get, oh yeah, this is why I really like this book and. Uh, we're actually teaching that book right now. So that's kind of fun to be kind of re-experiencing that. And, oh, yeah, that's the things that I really like that, that I, mm. about this book that I don't necessarily like about the movie. Uh, but, you know, that's it's always a tough thing to do when you're making an adaptation to try and how do you how are you make a, a movie that appeals to both readers of the book and first-time viewers who have no idea what this universe is about. And so there's going to be compromises that you have to do, and nobody's going to be happy with 100% of it. But uh, yeah, so it's I, fine. I'm I'm also going to choose to take issue with this because if I recall, you do not like the voiceover and narration in Blade Runner, 
yet. You want it in this. You're in the corner. No, and see, that's fine because that movie does a great job of showing instead of telling, where this movie does a lot of telling. Like, oh, are those tracker jackers? Let's talk about what a tracker jacker is. And oh, Stanley Tucci, I could hear and, his voice when you said that. And I'm just like, you know what? You don't have to do any of that. You just go, hey, those are bees. Bees are bad. We all know that. Look at these but people writhing on the ground. Part was- worked for me, Craig. Nah, you didn't that need part it. was beautiful. Yeah. Because you know why that part was so wonderful? One, it's Stanley Tucci, which, by the way, this is the finally of all the movies I've ever seen him in. This one is his perfect role. He is absolutely stellar. He's just him being him in this. But- at that scene, it's the entertainment value of the show and American Idol and contestants and yeah. the audience is watching. Oh, Tracker Jackers, let's bring that up for our audience and making it an entertainment value, a gladiator combat that everybody's bloodthirsty for. And that was the part that I was like, yes, this nailed it right there. Hate it. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, so I'm going to feed off. <laughs> I'm going to tell you this another there. thing too. I'm going to push back on that again because when she has the, she actually has the, the, when she's hallucinating, like he shows up again and talks about that stuff. And that I don't mind because that's her interpreting it. And you could have just done that instead of having Flickerman and, and, and Templesmith talking. You didn't need that. See, I'm they gonna, did it twice. No, I, I... Come on, your audience is smarter than that. Don't talk down to them. Well, I... Some of you... I, you mm-hmm. Oh, man. Okay, because here, I, here's why I like it. Can I just... Re- I like it because I wanted more world building in this movie. I wanted to see the citizens of the capital more and their lifestyle. Like, are they actually into watching the Hunger Games? Show show me the interest in that in the same way that we are into watching American Idol. Not me personally. I think it's trash. But <laughs> America's Got Talent. Yeah, no, I don't. I the don't way like we, we watch those, stuff. but the way we watch those no. reality shows and people get together and. The finale. See, you can and- show that though. Show the audience watching, which they do a little bit. They show like I want more. Show, of that. They show her mom doing that. You can do that, but don't talk down to your audience. It really, is, it really is a Running Man style with Schwarzenegger of uh, what's his name, Killian, and Running Man in the audience watching and following along is how they feel with that that Tracker Jacker scene. I could see where you struggle with that one. I could. It's just I don't agree, but I can see why well, you would. It's done just just done so much better in the book. Mm. It just really is. And you could do you don't even have to do voiceover there. You can just go like, oh my gosh, are those tracker jackers? I'm in trouble. Like it doesn't yeah. have to be long. It's it's bees. We know bees are bad. And oh, then but bees, they, are, they bees are different type of bees. Well, it's not they, just regular bees. They also convey the but they also show you the hallucinations, and you don't need to go, hey, she is now currently hallucinating. I can see that she is. That's my yeah. Point. As one of those stupid audience members, I appreciated it. <laughs> All right. So okay. here's here here's my thing. I I realized what I was trying to say in the opening monologue about the plot, and I realized okay. I found yeah I was a little late to the party here. Sorry. Okay, that's okay. Um, the thing that I like about this movie because I don't like all of the movie. I feel it drags on, and I know there's time periods that are passing that I don't realize. I don't think they convey it as well because this isn't done overnight. I mean, how how long's the movie this fight taken the book? I mean, it's probably weeks, a couple weeks. weeks. I mean, from and the from the, think, be- from the reaping to the end, it's definitely weeks. I feel like yeah. that's one of the issues is it doesn't convey the passage of time super well. Yeah, sure. like throughout yes. the whole series or trilogy. Yeah, you, I mean. you get that much more in the book. 
But the the depth of these dystopian future movies that I think is good, and I, I think this is where Hunger Games nails this. There's good people and there's desensitized people. Okay. Yep. I don't think all the people who were in the reaping were bad people or evil people, but they are desensitized. Cato is the one that you look at where he's like, I'm just ready to go. And he's the favorite to win. Right. And so they're all desensitized to this way of life. And they're both forced into this corner to go survive and to fight and battle. And the tale of Hunger Games is that eventually one of those groups or both of those groups is going to turn and rise up against the true evil that's putting them in there. And I think that was where the rest of the series goes. That's where Katniss goes and starts to develop a hate, not for the people, but yeah. for the for the, the system that's putting her there. And I feel like that part right now is so relevant to our world that we're living in right now, where we have good people and we have desensitized people. And in the end, everybody's fighting and there's, people pulling strings, making things happen along the way and pitting us against each other. And so rather than fighting against ultimate evils, we're kind of desensitized and forced to do this and we're battling each other when we really don't need to. It's not necessary. It's a terrible, terrible situation that we're always battling these. And it's not just this, but it's, I mean, this, this type of mentality. And, and so I think that's the part where I was like, okay, Hunger Games has an actual deeper story than just, yeah. I go in and I fight the battle and I win. Yeah, you get into the catching fire and, and, and mocking Jay. For, I think she fleshes those. Yeah, uh, Suzanne Collins fleshes those themes out really, really well, and it does for make for I think a much more interesting story than hey, we're just going to do it again, which just is kind a of dystopian future movie like, or, or yeah, we're just going to go ahead, or, we're going to have to just fight through Divergent. the games again. No, there is a larger, yep. bigger thing. Well, and I think that's what the is. first movie did. The first movie did. Okay, this is the world we live in. This is the stakes. Yeah. This is the game. This is showing the like true, true like, I guess barbarity is that a word of the society. And then two yeah. and three, it's like okay, now we're going to show yeah. how we're going to take down this political regime. Yeah, there is a lot of this movie that I do like, and that that is definitely one of the things uh, I did want to mention just real fast before we get into cinematography. That strangely enough, this is our third straight movie with an opening crawl for exposition. I don't know what, how we stumbled oh. upon that, but yeah. Stats. I, Stats goes, don't lie, gentlemen. <laughs> I guess it goes back to the world building thing. Like, there's a lot to unpack from this and Highlander and Blade Runner. Well, and I think that's that's my biggest complaint to the movie is I I wanted more world building. Like, there's a whole political system there that doesn't get explored all that much. Uh, like, we get little clips here one, and there. The maybe, new one will the, do that. Maybe, the well, snakes and have you guys read what's a, the next the Ballad one of Songbirds? Snakes? The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Have you guys read the book? The rise uh, of snow, basically, right? So this will go into that world building. It that is. I done. think it's a. Yeah, I think it, it absolutely does that. And I think what's fascinating about this, just minor sidebar before we get into the, this movie, uh, is that first off, you know, Hunger Games, the, the trilogy of books, was was a first person narrative, which I loved. Uh, the 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 prequel, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, is a third person, so it's outside narrators outside of the story telling Snow's origin essentially, and without giving away too much, you don't hate him. He becomes sympathetic, which is really interesting because it, she also doesn't shy away from the fact that he does a lot of very, very bad things. Um, but he's a fascinating enough character that you are invested. He is definitely the protagonist of, okay. of that one. And, and it does give you a lot of background, a lot of why he is the way he is and, 
watching this movie too. When he like when he talks about uh, there's a conversation. I think I'll probably mention it later, but now's a good time too. Talks to Seneca Crane about you know have you been out to the districts? And he's like, well, no. He's like, well, I have. And he talks a little bit about some of the things he's picked up. He kind of hints at the past of, of you know, why he has these these feelings and why he has this knowledge. And it, those things are explored in that book. So, and hopefully in the movie, I'm hoping so. Now that's that's the fan theory about him going out to those other districts that I agree with. That makes this movie so much better. Is that Snow uses the reaping and all of this as a propaganda tool? The Hunger Games is a propaganda tool for everybody staying in line, and it's a way that he assesses every district's insurgency or capabilities to become yeah. rebellious. So he pulls a random selection from each one, and then he gives them a small amount of time to train, and then he gives them whatever kind of weapons you want, which is what a, a, a rebellious uprising is going to do. Can you become a soldier in a matter of weeks, and then you go into this battle, and then what are your... What does it look like for a truly desperate person who joins this rebel militia, goes in, fights, does all this, and then you look and say, oh my gosh, that person is dangerous. This district is dangerous. Those are the mm. kind of people that live there. And so it's a propaganda tool that he's using for his own power. And when I hear that, I'm like, I like this that. movie makes so much more sense. And why you see Katniss really hate him and why he says hope is terrible. And he tells the guy, do not to give them hope, like take away. Just a little that bit. You hope. need it. You got to control it. Yeah. Every spark. All right. Well, let's dive into to the cinematic aspects, starting with with cinematography. So composition, color, camera work. Mm. You guys can just jump in whenever. What, what's what stood out to you? All right. I'm gonna take the easy one. Can I do that? Yeah. Of course. I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> steal it before someone else does. Yep. Uh, each of the districts has their own distinct style. It's almost like they just had a filter there on the camera. Capital mm-hmm. is is very bright and extravagant, almost like distractingly so. Uh-huh. I think that's the point. Uh, and then district, uh, which one's Katniss? Twelve. Twelve. Yeah. Uh, just everyone's obviously very gray and like brown and covered in soot, and it's just it's just dirty, like browns and grays everywhere. Even in the uh, uh, the Victor's Village, like which is supposed to be you know, uh, class above. And even that is kind of run down. Um, and, and as we like do snapshots from the other districts, which I wish, again, I wish they did more of, um, you kind of see the same thing. Like they all have their own distinct styles and colors and just a very clear mood every single time. Uh, and I thought, yeah, if you want to show and not tell, like that's a very, very quick way to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Katniss, you're right. Katniss's District 12 was very uh, frontier west feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not a it's lot Ap- of electricity. It's Appalachia. Yeah. It was definitely quite different. That's literally where it is in the book. So it makes sense. But some of the wood and doors and handles and everything, and we were very intricate that I thought were, but they were the kinds of things that people used and made and took care of and repaired, not. Not it's mahogany it's, wood coming in it's, from. It's almost like like nineteenth early nineteenth century yes. like frontiersman type yep. thing. Absolutely. Whereas whereas the the capital is very, uh, not not incredibly futuristic, but clearly they have a little bit better technology and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the colors were very muted. The people were very uh, no makeup. 
very plain, fixed their hair, not a lot of fancy. You're and then in it tw- was in twelve. Yeah. And then it's contrasted with uh, Millie's absorbent, luxurious Effie trinket, yeah, or Effie, yeah, yeah, uh, over the top style where she comes in there, and I'm just. <laughs> it's so disgusting to me to see how would you even stand there in front of these people realizing what's going on. I don't, it just is, oh my gosh, district capital is so disgustingly over the top. It uh, it, it goes to show and like Rome to- kind of to- feeling. Like tone deaf too. They just yes. are not aware. 100%. And uh, I will say this, I'm going to point this out because not sure if everybody caught this, the camera work. When uh, Katniss's sister gets picked in the reaping, mm-hmm. Katniss put a Mockingjay pin on her, and she's the only one who had that pin. Was she picked, or was she picked because of that? Because of that, like I, in my head, it makes sense. Snow's watching this, and everybody's watching this reaping, right? And uh, I mean, she's the only one who gets picked, and she's the only one who has this pin. And then Katniss has to step in and take her spot which I thought was kind of very intriguing. Nobody else is wearing a pin. Nobody else is wearing a button. And her number is the one that gets called. And so, and they make a point to show uh, Effie, what's her name? Effie again? Effie Trinket. Effie grabbing in the thing and then reaches back and grabs something. Like maybe that was a, this is where you grab from. And I don't know, in a propaganda move, that would make sense. (laughs) It would make sense to say, this is what you do. And this, it's leaning a little bit of a, yeah. Of a squashing rebellion type thing. It would make sense in a dystopian future you would do that. <laughs> I know they mentioned some of the significance of the Mockingjay, but um, I don't know, Craig, maybe you can tell us more. Maybe I mean, the books it, go into it more. Yeah, no, the books absolutely go into it more. Uh, this is something we covered, I think, last week. Where, um, So the one of the many things that the Capitol does is create hybrid animals. They're called mutations. Uh, in the book. And one of them was something called a Jabberjay. And the idea behind the Jabberjay was that it would go, um, it's basically a spy. It was basically like a recording, like an organic recording device and would go into supposed rebel camps and then would listen and essentially record and then report back, fly back to the capital and say all the things that were happening. Um, and then at some point the rebels catch on to this and they start feeding bad information or whatever. But the Jabberjays are still out there, and then they mate with mockingbirds, and they create the mockingjay hybrid animal. And so it's actually kind of a symbol of failure for the capital that this creature even exists. Oh, so you know what he just did there, <laughs> Justin? He just explained that to us like tracker jackers. He just did the. <laughs> it was his role to fill and say. Oh, so what you're seeing here, audience, is <laughs> yeah. Show, show, don't tell, Craig. <laughs> yes. Man. Well, that's how it goes in the book when <laughs> Katniss explains it to us. You know what? I'm not so dumb that I need it explained to me. <laughs> I, I am. I, you, I, didn't yeah, I missed. Well, just in case, if you've not read the book, first off, read the book. It's amazing. Um, but yeah, it, it's not. I don't think it's something that's explained very well in the movie. It might be just. I think it's just briefly hinted at. It's from season well, one. Are. We missed it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I'm pretty sure in one of the movies, they kind of just mentioned, oh, this is the sign of the rebellion of a rebellion. Yes. Yeah. That's all I remember. Really. Yeah. Uh, speaking of camera work, I think the camera work in the opening stages before the battle starts is tremendous. You get kind of an over top view a little bit. You get some different shots right when they're all about to jump off their platform. You know what I mean? In the very beginning, 
right before the Hunger Games actually start. And they do it in a great way. I mean, I had anxiety watching that. Like, oh, oh my gosh, which one would I go for first? Would I go for that pile? You know, would I get out there? Would I do all that? They do a great job of kind of building some of that intensity just with uh, the game show aspect or aerial views or kind of the chaos of the camera. So I feel like they do a really good job bringing you in as a viewer and giving you a little bit of angst in that scenario in the beginning of this is going to be a bloodbath right here in the first 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's going to fan out and it's going to kind of become a lull. Like if you were watching this as a real show, you would sit there and say, I've got to watch the first 10 minutes. And then after that, it's going to slow down a bit. Well, and they, they do it in such a way with like that countdown timer as well, that when that first kid, I think the first kid dies from like a javelin or something. Yeah. It is, it is shocking. Mm. Like, oh my goodness. Yeah. They're going to like, <laughs> oh, they're going to do it. Yeah. Like they're not going to save you last minute. I, I remember the first time I saw this movie, I believe in theaters, it, that really took me back. All right, I'm yeah. going in. Going in. Are you, you got something else, Corey? Nope. nope. Okay, because I got a bunch. Um, let me start with, uh, we, we mentioned Effie and when she pulls the the name. And one thing I noticed this time, I thought was interesting because there had been a lot of close-ups. There's a lot of close-ups of the Capitol people. Um, uh, that, that first um, interview with, with Seneca Crane and, and Caesar Flickerman, it's almost intimate close-ups. They're super close. Um, and you have that with Effie too, when she's about ready to read, there's a zooming in on her face and her wig and her outfit and things like that. But then when she pulls the card and is about to read uh, Prim's name, it's a super wide shot with her really far back away from the crowd. And I thought, I mean, like she's, you guys mentioned this too, like they're disconnected from the actual process and what's happening. It really just had her on the stage by herself completely separate. And I thought, what an interesting choice where you've gone super close, super close, super close to now it's wide when it actually matters. When I'm selecting someone for death, it's, you know, it's not real to her at all. It's, she's very separate from that. So yes, I thought that was a fascinating choice uh, for that. Uh, I did want to point out to the, the, the flashback scenes, there's this very heavy bluish desaturated um, effect for that. There's also with the sound, there's no sound for that too. I thought that was a really um, clever way to you know, let us know, hey, this is in a different time period, but it's also very important. And blue is obviously very sad most of the time. Um, the shaky cam though is the biggest thing that I came away from this, yeah. uh, this film. The first time I saw it, I hated it. It drove me nuts because it felt like it was just random through, because it was most of District 12. I mean, it starts with that very, you know, it's a steady shot of the, the interview, like I mentioned before. Uh, and then it goes to, there's this one opening shot of, of District 12 where there's no people. And it's just kind of like, hey, look, we're basically out in frontier land. Uh, and then it's shaky cam all over the place. Like it's, the camera is moving continually. Um, and I, I think what you're supposed to get from that is, is that we're empathizing with, with the sense of unease that district 12, the, the inhabitants are feeling because we're kind of off put it like they're uncomfortable. So we're uncomfortable, uh, or vice versa. Um, and so that bugged me, but the thing that you guys mentioned I think Corey specifically you about the the cornucopia scene when that and Justin yes. when that that first violent you know outburst that I thought was brilliant use of shaky cam because the, you know this is a PG thirteen movie and the way that you get away with that and this is the thing I always point out to my students too is that you don't have to directly show what's happening 
you can get away with these odd angles and the camera moving and it's quick and flashing here and it's just really disorienting while you know, like you feel like you're seeing a lot more death than you probably are because yes. the camera is moving everywhere. And so that I thought was a really brilliant choice. Whereas the first one was just like, I, I can kind of stretch a little bit to see where you're going, but that one just made, made sense. Well, and I think in 2012, we were kind of coming off the extreme use of shaky cam. Mm. I'm looking at you, Born Identity movies. Um, <laughs> Lord. There you go. I, lo- yeah. I love those movies, but a lot of parkour. Shaky cam. Yes, it, so yeah. much parkour. Um, and watching it, you know, 10, 11 years later, we're not so inundated with the shaky cam. And I think we can like appreciate it a little bit more and not just go, ugh, they yeah. did it again. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, Man of Steel is the next year, too. You know, that's a pretty heavy use of shaky cam at the beginning as yeah. well. So that makes sense. Uh, Craig, I'm just kind of glancing through real quick as I see it. You, the shaky cam that I didn't even notice until you said that is as the games are beginning, the countdown and stuff, mm-hmm. and they're zooming in on some of the, the weapons and things that are sitting there, the camera has a slight shake, just a subtle one. Usually I'm ta- when you say shaky cam, I'm thinking like right. the, the violent shakes where I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't see what the heck's going on. But with this one, it's so small and subtle. It's the, it's the feeling of a cameraman who's filming for a reality show standing there and it's got a little bit of movement in it. And then yeah. when it pans to the people who are in the control room, it's steady. Yep. It's a steady cam and it's kind of it's coming up. The view, we're zooming in on them, we're zooming back. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I so do. You, you get the feeling like, oh my gosh, this guy's in the field filming this, watching this death unfold in front of him. Which and there's a little bit of adrenaline pump, and so you got just a small shake in your camera. That is quite astute. I never saw that, never paid attention to it, but you are spot on in what it's doing. No, you. I mean, you caught it. I mean, it's it feels like it's Katniss's point of view. Like it's very yes. immersive for us to be on that on that pad watching the countdown. The sounds design is doing that for us too, and it is it is stressful. And you know, you know what can't do all that? A narration voiceover. <laughs> But you don't need it continually, Justin. That's my yeah, point. Yeah, I don't. I don't know why I'm picking on this. Like, I got no <laughs> beef with narration voiceover. I just. I feel like I need to be the anti-Craig sometimes. There you so, go. so along with that, I will also point out other point of view things. Like when she is, you know, she's hallucinating. Like the it's very first person. Her kind of running through the jungle. That Peta comes up to her and whatnot. And it's very distorted and blurry after the tracker jacker stings and i don't need you to tell me oh it looks like she got stung by a tracker jacker she must now be seeing things weird it shows us in a really effective way and so it kind of felt to me like they were i don't know hedging their bets on some of the stuff like you did great job showing me you don't also need to tell me i think that's probably why it bugged me the most yeah so anything else for uh for visuals before i move on no. All right. So sound effects, the soundtrack, Justin, you mentioned the score briefly. Mm. Voiceovers, uh, anything? I'm going to bring up the sound effects of the reaping in District 12 with Katniss and how there is an overemphasis. There's periods of silence. And whoever the sound mixers were, you know how they always have to do them on stage. And so someone's walking, they got to get shoes on their hands and they, they have to mimic those sound effects. Whoever did that was amazing because there's an emphasis on footsteps, gravelly shoes as they're all walking out to line up for the reaping. Uh, There's a scene, the keepers, you hear the radio chatter blurring in the background, right? And then 
This is amazing. And this is the detail. Jennifer Lawrence, when they first show her walking out for the reaping, there's a bug that flies right by her. Did you catch this? Has any of you seen this? Oh my gosh, you got to go watch that scene again then. There's a bug that flies by her and you hear the wings go right by the camera as it does. It has this little like chitter that bugs do that as it goes by. And I thought the fact that you left that in or made a sound mixer put that in with the gravelly shoes (laughs) and everything that's going is a detail to build that whole scene and to build that. You know that sound guy is watching that scene and sees that bug fly by and he just goes, oh, now I got to put this in. Dang it. Yeah, and maybe that's what it was, but it looked it looked too. It was probably a tracker jacker, but it would it looked too, <laughs> no. um, it looked too intentional to just have that. Like maybe they CGI'd it. I don't know. And, and that soundkeeper probably whoever it was probably did that. Worked like ten hours to do it to get it timed just right and do it just right. And then nobody's even going to notice this. And here I am. I know you. It. You know. Well done, it. sound yeah. guy. Well yeah, done. There's there's a lot of sound guys. I'm just I just googled it. I went to IMDb really fast, and there's there's a large one. Oh, the supervising color artist though is Gary Hecker, who I'm not surprised. Gary Hecker, who did he started got his start on on Empire Strikes Back and has done hundreds of movies. It's odds are if it's a movie that you like the sound design on, it's it's Gary Hecker. So. Yeah, Gary, and, well done. I, I need everyone to tag all the sound guys from this movie so that we <laughs> can and just and just get let them, them know dude, we appreciate. You them. got just, your due here, sir. You got yeah, your due here. He did into um, the Spider Verse and Watchmen. I'll give you those two right there. But then after she gets picked and she has like three minutes to talk to her family, you hear rustling of clothes. You hear footsteps. You hear different Mm -hmm. materials on the door as the door handles turn. There's so much intention to detail there. And the rest of the movie, it gets washed out with the violence and the intensity of the scenes that you don't pay attention to the little things uh, like which they, by the way, later they do with Katniss's arrows and how they clink together. There's some very intentional things that you're normally not going to pay attention to or think about. And then you hear them, and it just adds to the scene and the really reality of what we're looking at. Nice, just. I feel that that way almost. Uh, like you're saying, there's there's a lot of sound that adds to the intensity of the scene. But um, once the games start, and you just have I don't know a solid forty five minutes of the games, um, there's just long bits of silence where all you hear are like twigs cracking in the background. And like animal sounds and like the intentional creation of silence is unnerving for a lot mm. of it. Like you, you don't know right. when something is going to happen and when she's going to have to start running for her life. Like that is just, how, how would you even sleep in that situation? Yeah. Like it, 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 the movie slows down quite a bit. I feel like before the games and then once they get into the games, it's like, all right, all hands on deck. Let's, let's pump yeah. up the tension. Yeah. That's a really nice pull. I want to I want to point out that how good a, a pull that is, Justin, because in the in the book it's a little bit more expressly um, shown. Whereas in the movie we we think, oh, well, that's she's just in a forest. They put her in a forest. It's like no, this is a completely artificial environment. They're inside a dome, and so you they can manipulate that any way they want to. And so uh, there's since, you know, since we're talking about that, that I, and back to my like complaint about world building, I feel like they didn't make it very clear, and maybe they did, and I'm just a bad viewer. That it was an artificial environment until I feel like toward like the middle to the end of the game when when mm-hmm. they start like playing with fire and pushing her more towards right. the center, knocking the tree like, over and stuff. Yeah, it, it just seemed like okay, you're out in the forest and we can like manipulate the forest a little bit, but 
I, I feel like they should have spent more time being like, okay, this is an artificial environment. This sure. is what we can and can't do. Like, give me, give me the rules. I don't like, I don't like undefined things in movies like that. I feel that way about some superhero movies where they don't clearly define like the superhero's power. Like, oh, I want to know what they're capable of. Yeah. I want to know what this arena is capable of. And I don't feel like it did that very much. No, you just get glimpses of that, like with the cameras up in the trees and stuff like that. The second movie, it's, I mean, I, I don't want to put this one down in, in favor of the second movie, but the second movie does. It's a very clearly defined yeah, yeah. artificial they, environment, they, they for do. instance. Um, and maybe they wanted that to be a surprise for the audience. Sure. I'm not sure, but and that's I true. It like could have been it. an intentional choice to kind of mask that and just kind of suck you into a, oh, this is just a nice little forest. But if we're supposed Humbert. to see this from Katniss's perspective, like Katniss knew it was an artificial Yes, she did. In environment. So I feel like the audience should have known that as well. Like if she is a stand in for the audience, that that would have, I don't know. I, I felt hoodwinked. Yeah. 11, no, 11 years ago. <laughs> um, one of my favorite sounds of this, of this movie is um, it's they start with that opening uh, interview and uh, uh Seneca Crane is asked, uh, Flickerman asks him, what defines your personal signature? And before he answers, you just hear Prim scream out hmm. of nowhere. Like, I just love that there's a smash cut to her just screaming. Like, that is, yes, that is Seneca Crane's signature, is that he, he's horrible. He kills people and he terrifies people. Um, just thought that was amazing. Um, I also like when... Uh, Katniss walks out for her interview. When her interview comes up for, for Flickerman, um, the, the sound gets really distorted, which kind of brings us into that. I love those. Like you're showing me auditorial in this case, um, mm. how she's feeling. Uh, you also get that when the mines explode, when she shoots the, you know, shoots the app, the bag of apples, um, explodes all of the, the career's food. Those things I love. I, I have to say, I think that, I, to kind of echo what you said, Justin, that the score is one of the absolute best things about this film. Yeah. I, I think it's really, really strong and elevates this, um, this film quite a bit. It's James Newton Howard, who has done countless films that you've heard of. Um, just going to take a look here real fast. So he's done like over 100 plus films. He did The Fugitive, which I think is another very underrated score. He did Batman Begins and The Dark Knight with Hans Zimmer um, and done all of Francis Lawrence's films pretty much. Uh, which continues throughout the rest of the series. But he's a couple of leitmotifs in this, which I'm always a big fan of pulling those out. There's uh, First off, you have uh, what's called the Horn of Plenty, which is essentially the, the theme song for, for Pan Am. It's like their national anthem, um, which was actually composed by Arcade Fire, the band Arcade Fire. Uh, but then James Newton Howard did a movie score version. So you get to hear that during... Uh, the first time you get to hear it is during kind of the, the propaganda speech at the beginning. Uh, right before they do the reaping and then but you yeah. get the really big heavy one during the parade with drums and all that stuff and it's clearly it's clearly propaganda it's clearly meant to evoke you know like triumph of the will and kind of i mean it's it's you know there's some heavy fascist things going on with that uh but that's powerful and me very memorable used multiple times you also have you know you have katniss singing deep in the meadow a couple times where she sings it to her sister after the nightmare but also sings it to rue so you get that very clear parallel between the kind of the way that she views both of the younger girls um but i think my favorite one is it's called it's called tenuous winners slash returning home 
mm. uh, which is just kind of slow, melancholy one. You hear this um, as Katniss salutes District 11 when Rue dies. Uh, and then the riots ensue right after that. A bunch of other times you hear it right before Peta and Katniss eat the nightlock berries. And then also on the train ride home, it's that last um, kind of very slow, very you know, emotive song, which then transitions into a song called Abraham's Daughter, which is another Arcade Fire song. So, um, Just a great use of, of score. I think it really elevates this above a lot of you know, things like not to rip on Twilight, but a lot of like YA adaptations around the same time. Like the score is legit in this for this film. This this is a safe space. We could wear rip on Twilight. That's totally fine. <laughs> well, this true. This one also has you know, also has a song by Taylor Swift on it called "Safe and Sound," which won a Grammy award. So, uh, yeah, Taylor, who? Kids. What's her name? <laughs> of she's course. this new girl. You might have heard of her. Justin's a uh, big fan. I've hey, never heard. Hey, of her. I take okay. Um, Craig, here's here's the thing. <laughs> Yes. Dear, dear audience, um, Craig, who is a middle school teacher, and myself, who is a middle school teacher. And myself. Uh, oh, and we're all middle school teachers. Yes, that would yes. be easier to say. Yes. Uh, but Craig has told many of his students that I am not a true Swifty. And after they leave Craig's class, they make their way to my class, and they just glare <laughs> at me, and they're like, you're a fake Swifty. Like, I don't even know you, tiny <laughs> human. Get out of my face. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Anyway, I just... Okay. I'm kind of mad about that. And every time we bring up Taylor Swift, it just brings up like a Taylor like Swift, Taylor Swift. hatred. Stop. Plays over the end credits. Mm. Safe and sound. What a Grammy. Taylor Swift and the Civil Wars. Uh, I do want to also mention there is voiceover. Very oh. good voiceover, I think, by President Snow during the propaganda speech. Over that little video right before the reaping. Effie just, I just love I, that. I'm so, going to tell you this. Like, you could not have so picked good. a better President Snow. Oh, oh, we got to yeah. talk about that. I know we got to get. We, sorry, we will. We will. We will. I, I I like Donald Sutherland in the role as well. I think just actors in general. We got a lot to talk about. Any yeah. Any uh anything else on sound before we actually get to performance? Hey, so I know that uh, Craig always outdoes us in these yes. um, moments. Oh, stop. So I'm oh, shut up, Craig. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean that with love. So yes. I listened to the soundtrack nonstop on my way to work, on my way home from work, as I sat on the couch with my headphones, uh, nonstop. And I'm like, I'm going to get Craig this time. I'm going to get it. And I got nothing. All those yeah. things you just said, Craig, I'm nothing. telling you. It's like watching Kobe Bryant work, and then we are doing work. high B-squad players. That's what that is. I don't even so, think. I'm like, I'm like middle school on the playground over here. Yeah. <laughs> in in my continual hunt for uh, for partners, for 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 advertising. Um, I will put in a plug for, uh, for Soundhound because when I hear a song that I think is interesting or one that I think I've heard before, I just put the Soundhound app on my phone and go, oh, it was this. Okay, cool. Where else was this beard? So Is that like Shazam? Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. When you so. said in my continual hunt for partners, I thought, I thought you were going to fire us, Craig. Yes. <laughs> like on the yeah. spot. Dang guys, it. you heard it here first. These guys <laughs> let me just tell you, their sound. you failed Air, the audition. You're gone. All of you are unqualified. That's what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good run. No, all, Thanks, guys. All I'm saying is I, like, that's, I'm using a tool. That's, that's there. So Okay. It's, I mean, that's the thing that like for our audience, too. Like while you're listening, feel like, oh, that's interesting. Figure out what it is. Yeah. You know, it's, it just layers up your uh, your understanding and hopefully your appreciation of the film. I think we should just have a new segment up, called Craig's segment. He just talks about music <laughs> while we sit quietly. Yeah. Soundtown. Oh, this is pretty I'm going to stop trying. Brought to you by Soundtown. This, uh, Thank this you, Soundtown. Brought to you by Soundtown. 
There you go. Uh, so, yeah, performance. Let me just tell you this. I'm throwing it out there. Steals a little bit of spotlight in the show. Woody Harrelson. I sure. His first meeting of him on the train, I think, <laughs> is absolutely perfection. You could not have... You could not have had a different actor play that part. He comes in, he's looking like the drunk. He's he is damaged, and he just flat out says in the beginning when uh, Peta's like, "All right, aren't you supposed to help us?" kind of thing, and he's like, "Whoa, so eager." Yep. And then he talks about the other ones. You know, the other ones took their time, waited. You're so eager, and then he says, "I know in my heart there's nothing I can do to save you." And I, at that moment, you. I mean, in the whole beginning, you're watching them come in. You're like, oh, my gosh, this is the who they're going to pin their hopes on. Someone teaching them is this drunk. And then you find out, no, he's not drunk. He's just so hurt that he's he's a survivor. He's and damaged. He is so damaged. And his whole line of I know in my heart, there's nothing I can do to save you. You're done. Yeah. And I'm just sending you to your death. And I get a couple of weeks with you before you die. And, and that's why middle school teachers need to retire early. <laughs> I, think they're so. just like, I think so. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing. Yeah. Uh, but I saw a little bit of that killer instinct because Peter gets mad at him, jumps up to try and take the liquor from him, yep. and he stops him with his and foot. has his foot up there on his chest. And it was a perfect moment of kind of that killer instinct and that reaction time are still there, even though I'm a drunkard. And it was just instinct that he did it. It wasn't, it, it was a little bit of a, it's like getting in close with someone who's who knows these wrestling moves and boxing moves to take you down. And they do it without even thinking about it. And so it was, I thought it was brilliant. I loved it. Yeah, I love sure. Woody Harrelson. Yeah. yeah. So you, you I, threw out kind of a quote from there. Yeah. More or less. So Justin. Oh, I was, I was just going yeah, to continue to, to, to praise some of the acting. Um, sure. Jennifer Lawrence, I mentioned this earlier. She does a fantastic job. She looks so traumatized and so bewildered and so stressed out. Just the entire movie. Like, just the weight of the world is on her shoulders. And, she, I mean, she she nails it. Like, she does a great mm-hmm. job. And Agreed. if you look at that to some of her other movies, like, she is a completely different person in this movie. And especially when she didn't have a whole lot of big titles under her belt at that point. Like, this was mm-hmm. kind of one of her big ones to start off yep. with. Um, it makes a lot of her co-stars, I feel like, almost fall short. And uh, you see a lot of interaction with her and... um obviously Gail and Peta. And I, 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 I tried to like observe Gail and Peta's acting, I guess, Liam Hemsworth and Josh Hutcherson, um, almost in solitude because I didn't want to compare them to how, <laughs> how great she is right. as an opposite to them. But I, I don't feel like those two did a great job. Like, I think both of them, in my opinion, were miscast. Uh, Liam Hemsworth is just, he's too handsome. I don't. I don't believe that dude came from District Twelve. Nope. The gen, the gene pool in that area just could not have mixed to make that. Um, and then, <laughs> and then Peta is almost the other way. Like he, yeah. He he looks like there was there was some family gene pool going on there. I don't know how to put that wow. politely. I, wow. I don't. I don't like that. It dude. is Appalachia. Wow. Well, it is. It is Appalachia. Yeah. I mean, there's only so many people there, but. Um, yeah. I don't feel like he's very like enigmatic. He's he he doesn't like portray a lot of emotion, but not in a good way. Like just I I can't read that guy throughout that entire movie. I every time he's on screen, I don't like it. Yeah. It, okay. I don't like him. Yeah, he, no. he was not when I saw who who was cast. I was I was excited for Jennifer Lawrence, 
I think she, she I only I think uh, I'd seen her in at that point was uh, first class X Men first class. She'd been yeah. in a couple other things before then, but that was like the biggest. Which, was X up. was first class before this? Really? I think it was 2011. Oh, yeah. Because she did both series simultaneously. But yeah, Josh Hutcherson, he's he's fine, but he's also shorter than her, and he they could just he just didn't strike me as Peta from the book. But I think that's part of it too, is that you're supposed to say, oh, this is kind of a love triangle, and she's obviously going to choose Gale if that becomes a thing. And I think that's kind of what you're working with. Um, where you overlook yeah. Peta, that's kind of the idea. You, but, but, but yeah, when they describe him as being really, really strong, like he can pick a you know, fifty pound bag of flour and throw it over his head. Like not that guy. Look at that guy. He can't do that. Uh, speaking of overlooking Peta, I love it how everyone's like, I have my special skills. I can shoot a bow, and this guy's like, Well, I'm really good at swords. And Peta's like, I decorate cakes. I'm gonna make myself a rock. <laughs> like what the heck? <laughs> that's what you got. That's it. Like I'm, I'm hurt. I'm gonna decorate myself as a rock, and I'm gonna lay there for a couple of days. Like so I didn't see him useful? the first time he was laying there. Because he, he frosted the cakes, man. But how long did it take him to do that? Just to and sit. How could there? you stand on top and do it? I don't. I don't know. And suspension what if he has of to disbelief. Go to the bathroom. Like, does he just just, just go, man? Hey, it, it's the it. dumbest skill. It's dumb. I hate it. I hate Peta. I hate your stupid face. I hate <laughs> it when it's decorated like a rock. I hate it when it's normal. <laughs> it, that part was a bit of a reach, uh, wasn't it? That was a little bit. That just seems like lazy writing. <laughs> Easy there. Um, <laughs> we're going to need to do that film soon. Uh, this summer, I think, or before the summer. Okay, so you stole my, one of my best ones, Corey. The thing about the, there's nothing I can do to save you. Love that. Um, Are we, we going quotes? Is that what we're doing? Yeah, we're, we're throwing out some quotes. Um, I, I really do enjoy the, the Katniss, thank you for your consideration, that the way she... Mm-hmm. Very snarkily says that this movie has a lot. This is the biggest thing I came up with was there is a lot of gallows humor and a lot yeah. of irony in the way that people talk. Yes. You know, from, from the, from the, uh, not the capital people so much, but any of the people from the other districts and, and the tributes, there's a very much, uh, an awareness of the shortness of their life and like, you know, devil may care attitude. Like, what are they going to do to her? Like, she's going to die. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to tell you this. Here here we go. My quote, I'm going to throw it out there because I love wisdom in movies. Mm-hmm. And I think this movie has a lot of wisdom for our world. Just because, not because we're having Hunger Games, but that whole pitting good people versus who, and then people have to become vicious to, because they're forced into this corner. Um. Gail Hawthorne talking to Katniss, and he says, what if they did? What Just one year, what if everyone stopped watching? He's trying to say that the Hunger Games Mm -hmm. are bad. She says it won't happen, and then he says, what if no one watches, then they don't have a game? It's as simple as that. And she says, nothing. And he's like, what? And she says, nothing. And then he goes, fine, laugh at me. And she says, I'm not laughing at you. And I, I feel like in that moment... It's powerful because I looked at it as I'm not laughing at you, but I'm laughing that you think that people would do that. People mm-hmm. are people are too desensitized, they're too bloodthirsty, they're too hungry. And so I'm laughing for you that you can't see the reality of what we're forced to do here. And Gail's a little bit too hopeful and optimistic that he could like people would stop watching for a year. But that's our world. <laughs> our world 
something goes viral, something goes out there and people jump on it and social media is disgusting and wicked for some of these people right. because that's it gives them this audience to do these terrible things and to say these terrible things. And it's like, but we all have this mentality like we should have with Gail. Like what if just for one year people stop doing that? How much better would things be? And we know it would be true, right. but we don't. And so I love that. I love the quotes like that. I love moments like that where they put just a little bit of wisdom in here that it's not just a, a movie about these kids killing each other. It's There's a little bit of wisdom here and a little bit of setup and saying there's a payoff to this quote and to this wisdom. That being said, please share our podcast on social media with your friends and family. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Uh, social <laughs> media is good for that. As you yeah. were saying that, Corey, I was just thinking like there's just – I mean it, this is not a new thing. There's just so much negativity on social media right now. Like oh. right now the biggest thing is is the Schadenfreude – I just wanted to say that word uh, about how the the Marvels is not doing well at the box office. And oh, I'm no trying idea. to intentionally not talk about one way or the other on that. But it was like, if everybody just stopped being negative in, on social media, like, what would that be? Like, and, what you know, would that look like? just for one year, just, just for a day. You know, what would that be like? It's just, there's just so much negativity for, for no reason at all. Just people just happy that other people are failing in all numbers of things. It's just like, I, I just, I mean, I've fallen into that trap as well, but it's just like, if you just stand back and look at it kind of objectively, like, what the heck, man? Yeah. Like, why? Yeah. <laughs> what is so wrong with you that you're like, I have to put somebody down? Yep. Like, to make myself feel better. It's like, yeah. So, but I love that you brought that quote up, Corey. That's, that's true. Where we're feeding into the system. Justin, did you have another quote that you wanted to throw out? I did, because it breaks my heart. So uh, President Snow, who uh, I'll never say this line as good as him, but he says, it is the things we love most that destroy us. Mm -hmm. And now while that's very deep, I'm going to take it on a very surface level and, and direct this towards Corey. Corey, I look up to you, man. But every time you talk about how much you hate Blade Runner, it destroys me. <laughs> it, destroys me. <laughs> it, it hurts me. It hurts. Deeply. I'm yeah. so sorry. Uh -huh. It's so the sorry. things we love most that destroy I, us. And you, you know what? I'm dying inside. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> oh. uh, another uh. one from President Snow. <laughs> just yes. <laughs> oh, look, they're holding hands. I want them dead. <laughs> just I love he he is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, he he does have a lot of really good one-liners, and I'm excited to for like the prequel movie to kind of see who he was because mm -hmm. you, you do get a lot of depth from him and you can see that he is like, while he is a villain, he is, he is logical and he is yes. at least in his brain, he is doing what he thinks is right, which yeah. is keeping people in line so he can continue to feed them. He, he's well, doing what it works for him for sure. And he's so also that calculating. He yeah. is calculating. He saw Katniss as a spark before anything else. The moment she shot that pig out of that apple and that guy comes in and he talks to him about hope and get this spark under control, he yep. recognized in that moment that is a problem. And he saw what that rebellion would come out of her and he knew what he had to do. Yeah. And so like, I look at him as truly calculating and holding on to power and just, you know, Everybody's out here. I'm playing chess because I know 15 moves ahead, kind of thing. Yeah, what that looks 3D like. Chess. Well, and with 3D that apple, chess. with that apple scene, um, and Craig, maybe you can give us some spoilers here. Um, after she shoots the apple, she does like a little bow, and you see, mm -hmm. I've seen that bow in the trailer several times for the new movie, 
Uh, is there more significance to that bow, or is it just kind of like a mocking? I, mean, I think the you're, you're getting the look. You can see the look on on Rachel Zegler's face. That new character, we'll, which we'll get to. Um, can't remember her name off the top of my head. It's driving me nuts. I'll have to look that up. It, it's definitely a look of defiance, right? Yeah, you know, it's like my body language is saying curtsy, but my face is saying, like, you don't own me. Yeah, I just didn't know if that had become a symbol for District Twelve or something. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't, I don't know because I mean they are from the same district. Lucy Gray Baird is the name of that character, um, the new character. Um, I also wanted to point out um, part of I think it's 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 a little bit later, um, but with Snow and Crane, it's the underdog conversation. I love this because you talk about like what Snow is about and reveals who, who he is. Well, he says to Seneca Crane, he says, "So you like an underdog?" And Seneca Crane says. Everyone likes an underdog. And I love the way he just says, I don't. I don't. <laughs> right there. And then there's a pause. And then this is really telling. And I think especially after the, the prequel novel and, and movie, he says, have you ever been out there? 10, 11, 12. He says, not personally, no. He's like, well, I have. There are lots of underdogs. Lots of coal, too. Which is what we want, right? Crop, grow crops, minerals, things we need. There are lots of underdogs. And if I think if you could see them, you would not root for them either. Yes. Because that's what he's about. Like, we are keeping these people in this place. I don't care about the underdog. Like, I'm at this position. I've clawed, and you get a little bit of that in this book, in, in Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. He has scratched and clawed his way to this place. And you get a little bit of that in the second and third book. He's not yep. letting go of that easily. Yeah, I love. I believe it's the, it's the third movie where you first see, like, the, the blood kind of, like... Yep. Cu- come out of his mouth where you're like the poison what is, yeah. what is going on here yep. uh you get a little bit of that backstory that how he crawled his way into power yep fascinating character uh for body language and facial expressions um just gonna fly through a couple of things here i i really noticed this time the uh, the people in 12 very had, had kind of very forced smiles and very shifty eyes as they're just getting ready for the reaping uh, the three-fingered salute is huge. The the one that yep, Katniss gives. Well, they give her first, right? When she she volunteers, and then she does it uh, when Rue dies. If I ever have to uh, like leave my wife for the evening, and she's alone with the children, I'll walk out and give the three-finger salute. <laughs> I'm with Good you. Luck. I'm there with you. Go. you. May the odds ever be in your favor. There you go. Uh, I love um, speaking of Jennifer Lawrence is just great in this movie. That the, the thousand yard stare of anger she has when Peter professes her, his love for her on TV. Yeah, yeah. you just see you're the wheels turning uh, with that. So much you could talk about costumes. I mean, I don't even know how to even unpack that. So we've talked a little bit about the blue gray of the District Twelve people and um, utilitarian braids. I mean, those are it's out of their face, right? Yeah, uh, but then everything in the capital is extreme. All the colors, all the facial oh, hair, all capital's the disgusting colors. Everything the you know just bizarre. Um, nothing is authentic about any of those people, except for you get you know Cinna is the one that is very minimal. Like he's got a little bit of gold eyeliner and a little bit of piercings, um, but he's the only one, which is interesting because he's the stylist. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if you think there's anyone that would be. Extreme, it would be him, but he's he's the one that's not. Anything else you guys had for that one? We talked about the Mockingjay pin a little bit as a important uh, nope. prop slash costume thing. Okay. Uh, Se- as far as Seneca's beard, honorable mention. That thing is yeah, amazing. It is. 
amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He's not in the sequel. Well, no. He, he, he does die. <laughs> he went into the room. We see him locked in the, you're, We, we you're saw right. him locked in a room with, with uh, Nightlock Berries. There was a window. He could have jumped out of there. And no. It didn't those, matter. He, those could have been toast. cranberries, Craig. You don't know. Those were... Listen. You know? I mean... You're, so, in you're, props, I had a bowl of Nightlock <laughs> Berries for Seneca Crane because no, of the Nightlock Berries. That, no. No, like, that's, well, well that's done. mentioned here, in the next book here slash are raspberries. movie. There you go. Uh, well, a lot I like of to on see location the filming uh, for this film in North Carolina, uh, which is cool. Um, what I thought was interesting was that the Justice Building, which is where the reaping happens, seems to be the only "quote unquote" modern building that's made out of concrete. Everything else is CGI. Oh, yeah, it's like shacks and. Yeah, yeah. So it's like there's a couple of things where the capital itself is also very gray, which is interesting. Like most of the the you know the fashion and the people are all very colorful, but most of the architecture is just very flat gray concrete. Uh-huh. Um. So I thought what was interesting about the thing in District 12 was that I'm assuming the Capitol building was built with capital money, and so that's why it's the only kind of modern thing that's there in the whole yeah. time. Along with the sense. fact that they also have those um, really fancy like. TV hollow projectors to watch the Hunger Games. Like everything, they're like, they're, you know, like we mentioned it before, it's like, it looks like you're in, you know, the, the early or the late 1800s, except for stuff like that. Yeah. It's like, no, because this is the capital paid for this. Hmm. So those are interesting. Do you guys have anything for props, set decoration that you wanted to point out? Uh, just the luxuries of the capital that just drive me crazy. I mean, the, it's all perfectly played. Stanley Tucci and how goofy the people look. And and I got to admit, if you were pulled from the 1900s and looked at our world and social media and the things that are so popular and people do, you'd go, it would look exactly the same. Over the top, luxurious, just ridiculous amount of waste and... And uh, fake chivalry. I, I don't know. It's just amazing. So, uh, and I watch it and I get so mad at it. I'm just like, oh my gosh, this Capitol and Stanley Tucci's show and everybody's so fake and this is so propaganda. And are they going along with it or do they know? Anyway, it's just, a, it's yeah. a good, it's a good casting. It's a good set. It's a good prop that they all used. That That's why I, I want to know. Because you're right, they do seem so fake, and I want I want to know what do the citizens of the capital actually think about this? Are they staying in line just to keep their station as well? Like, do they know what's mm-hmm. wrong, but they kind of choose to look the other way, or I very are much they think it's that. are they just desensitized and they don't care? In the same way that we can go watch a movie and be like, ah, oh, desensitized, totally fine. Like Tom Cruise is going to kill another true. guy. Yeah. I guess in a but sense, I wanted to see more than that. I also wanted to see more uh, Stanley, Stanley Tucci's teeth. I think we could have seen more of those. You know <laughs> how? Just no, how? I'm just. I okay. love. I love. I love that. He's good. Uh, some other things I wanted to point out. Um, set decoration is uh, when they get on the train. When Katniss and Peter get on the train, did you guys notice how much blue is on there? Like the walls are blue, the chairs are blue, uh, and in color theory, blue can mean tranquility. Or calmness, and so maybe this is a way to kind of subconsciously mellow out the tributes and relax them. It also very, gets very quiet, like the hustle bustle of the district, as compared to the train is now just like 
like a yeah. void of sound. Absolutely. Um, I can't stand the control room though. Seneca Crane's control room. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I get why like they're doing the contrast between the you know out the rustic in in the woods at the arena, and then the control room is this and more scenic controlled. But I just hate that because none of that was in the book, and it drives me nuts because I wanted to just imagine it instead of having it directly told me. So, is what it is. I thought the control room was fantastic. It looked like a such a cool looking show and holographic and advanced futuristic. I don't know. I thought it looked good. Tell me more. I want to know more about the technology. Those are called tracker jackers. Uh, oh, anyway, you could track them. You could track the dogs, everything. All right. Um, we're running a little bit long, so let's skip down to, we talked about characters. One thing I did want to point out was uh, I do like Woody Harrelson as, as Hamish, but I knew at one point it was rumored that Hugh Laurie, you know, the guy that played house was going to be up for that role. And I would have loved to have seen him play. He could have been great. Yeah, he could have been great. Him and everything. Um, and as much as I love Donald Sutherland as as Coriolanus Snow, physically he's very different from his book counterpart. And so that he's great in the movie, and I can separate that. But I always envisioned somebody more like um, I'm trying to remember Mr. Rogers, Crispin Glover. I was thinking Crispin Glover. Crispin, Crispin Glover. You know, he was George McFly, the and then and then yeah, and then he but he played a bad guy in like the Charlie's oh, Angels he movie. Pulled it off. I no. think he absolutely could have pulled it off. He's creepy and weird. Uh, he's also in the the Alice in Wonderland movie. Whoever this one. is has to be able to sit on the other end of an ultimatum and kind of. He's a little power, guy. That's like, the thing. Snow like is gonna, a little guy in the book. Like you, you know, I'm a snake right here. Oh, I know, but Donald See, he Sutherland kind of looks is like a snake. snake in what oh, he yeah. says and oh, his art, his comments. I'm looking and, up pictures of him. Yeah. That, Although you right? could have pulled it off with uh, the that guy nose from too, really, yeah, Robert California guy. What's his name? Um, oh. oh, Spader. Well, Sp- yeah, Spader, Spader anyway. could have been good. Oh my gosh, yes, please. That would have made it amazing. He's conniving. Like <laughs> That's he could have. You see what I mean there? You see that yes. character that he could have brought to it, where it would have been that we're in a we're in a negotiation here, but I already know I'm winning. Kind of comment that. that. Yeah. Oh. That's it's like twisted. James Spader, like a Rorschach test. It's like, where do oh. you know him from? You're like the office. <laughs> I'm like, I, I would go. No, but I know him. He's, he's in the go. blacklist. That's what I was going to say. The yeah. blacklist. No, the office is fine. It's just many, many other things. He's great. Age of Ultron, whatever. Um, yeah. Wes Bentley is as Seneca Crane. That's that's he's, he's quite good. Um, anybody else we didn't mention? We've mentioned Stanley Tucci at length because he's fantastic. He is really, really good. In this. Jack Quaid as Marvel, the guy that gets, you know, the guy that kills Rue. Featured heavily now in The Boys. So, yes. One of his early roles. Um, let's see. Moving down, moving down. Hero's Journey. This is one I like to talk about with the Hero's Journey quite a bit because I think it is a great example of the monomyth. If you go through all three books, really, you get through all the way through there because you do have Katniss as this reluctant hero. She absolutely doesn't want to be there, but becomes this very important symbol. Ultimately, so you do need all three books or four movies to tell the whole journey. You get the no spoiler. I don't want to spoil it if you haven't read the second book. Uh, you get Death of the Mentor and a bunch of other things where she really does undergo this metamorphosis and become this leader that she was picked to be, but was not ready for at all. Yeah, um, yeah. We've talked a lot about world building. That very much, it's say. And all I have for that one too was just it's a dystopian extension of our world. It is Panem is meant to be North America, like in an indeterminate time from now. Um, yeah. So final thoughts. 
You know, I go ahead. You want to go first, Justin? Nah, go for it. All right. Uh, I'm going to say my, I, I like this movie. I think it's a great, I think it's, it's better when you start to watch the whole trilogy, the well, four parts, and then you get into it. I think like Justin said, getting a little bit of backstory and prequel here coming out soon. I think that's going to help build that world a little more and make you really root and find favorites in here that you go, Oh my gosh, there's more to this than just the show and what's taking place. Um, I think the great idea, the key idea is that the Hunger Games is how violence is used to control people. They're using the violence same way Rome used the gladiator games to control people and to feed people's bloodthirstiness. Uh, President Snow is using these Hunger Games as a way to remind districts that they're helpless, but they're also feeding his constituents unceasing appetite for entertainment. And so Mm. amidst all this, I'm feeding you violence and entertainment and in, in turn, I'm staying on my power and I'm growing my power and you're powerless without it. And so I, there's a lot of truth to this in what takes place where, where strings are being pulled. So there's a lot of underlying themes here that you can take from it. Depends on how you're going to look at it. But, it. but in the end, it is great. Jennifer Lawrence, I know this put her on the map, but I think she's a tremendous actress and in this role does a tremendous job. I think she absolutely nails this as Katniss Everdeen. So. No, it's the first action movie. hero. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> How have we not mentioned that? <laughs> oh, well, we just did. Oh, okay, I didn't sorry. see Alien or Terminator or Terminator right. 2. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for those of you that don't know, just Google uh, Jennifer Lawrence, first action hero. You'll, you'll get it. You'll get it. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Okay, Justin, final thoughts um, other than that. Yeah. I think just overall it was a, it's a solid movie. Um, I don't think we really had any huge criticisms. Like we all kind of agree on this one for the most part. Um, it doesn't take a whole lot of uh, leaps story wise or or visually, cinematically, anything like that. Like it's it's pretty grounded. It it doesn't uh, break any. I, I can I'm gonna say grounded, and it doesn't break new ground uh at, at any point uh but we don't we don't need every movie to to try hard like it it works for me it's it's a movie i can go back and watch and enjoy over and over again and uh every time i watch it i feel like i get new themes out of it i i think especially as i get a little bit older and i i feel like as we get older we tend to get more into politics and into the world you mm-hmm. s- start to see this movie as a reflection of maybe some stuff going on in the world or what could happen or what could go on in our world. And it gets a little bit scarier, I guess. Um, but Hey, that's that, those are great movies. That's that, that's great literature. It's, it's a reflection of our world and it's going to change as your perception changes. So no, I, I think they did a, did a great job overall with the film. No major critiques. Nice. Uh, I would just say, uh, that it's a solid film, like you said, Justin, uh, good cast, high production values. And because of that, I think, that, like you said, it's, not, it's nothing earth shattering with it, but I think it's easily the best of the YA post-apocalyptic adaptations. So it's much better than The Giver, Divergent, The Fifth Wave, Chaos Walking, Maze Runner, Mortal Engines, etc. It's by far and away the best of those. Um, but my big question, and I don't want you guys to even answer it, but I just want to kind of leave us with this is, does this film work or a book? Does the story work as a warning against the kind of forces that could create such a world 
of inequality, survival, and resistance? Or is it just entertainment? Does mm. it work? Is it a warning? That's one for our just- readers to answer on Facebook. That's a, that's yeah. a great question to, like, to have a discussion about. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but uh, I'd be curious to know what, what, uh, what our listeners and uh, our Facebook group members think. Mm. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on X and Facebook. Email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use the SpeakPipe app on our website. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend and support us by writing a review on your favorite podcast catcher. One last thing. Our next episode will be a review of Raiders of the Lost Ark with special guest Thomas Riddle. Send us an email or voicemail about your favorite moments from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and we'll share it on the next episode. 